Uh, so what I want to do, uh, we'll do about 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions and, and discussions. Uh, I wanted to talk uh, a good deal about a research odyssey that I began in 2010, and to tell you a little bit about my thinking of how that odyssey began and what questions I began to raise about this, and then a little bit about the methodology for developing uh, a research approach, and then obviously the outcome. And, and what's nice is that even though this five-year period has now ended between 2010 and 2015, uh, really that's sort of the beginning. It's not the end of the beginning. It's the, I mean, it's not the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning, which means that there is a whole new cycle that will continue with this research. I'd be very interested in any uh, questions or suggestions or ideas you have, because clearly what I'm going to be talking about is also a work in progress, even though uh, the first five years has been fixed in a couple of studies, which I'll reference. Uh, so Mar let's go back to March 17th, 2010, which is an uh, interesting moment in communications history. Does anyone have any idea what happened? Um, March 17, 2010. And March 17, 2010 was the release of the United States National Broadband Plan. And this was the first time in the history of the United States that there had actually been a fully developed uh, national broadband plan uh, that had been undertaken. And the reason it was undertaken is that in 2009, some of you may remember in the United States there was a stimulus act, it was called the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, that came after the economic crash of 2008 and 2009. The notion is that we had to sort of revive the economy of the United States, and uh, Congress decided to pour a lot of money into that through this uh, act. And as part of that, they uh, devoted uh, about $7.2 billion to funding broadband development. And they did that through my old agency, which is called NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, also in the Department of Agriculture, which has something called the Rural Ele uh, Electrification Administration, which essentially uh, funds rural electric companies. So uh, both of those entities got involved in distributing uh, money, pretty large part uh, of the stimulus, actually I think about 1% of the overall total that Congress allocated was to broadband. But in addition to the money, Congress said, we really need to have a plan. And so they, in the law, they delegated to the Federal Communications Commission oversight responsibilities and drafting responsibilities for the National Broadband Plan. It doesn't mean that it was an FCC uh, document. It meant that the FCC had a leadership role and that it would ultimately result in a national broadband plan, not an FCC broadband plan. And so uh, essentially, it took about a year. What was very interesting is that there were not enough resources in, in the government to do this. And so they had to actually bring in a lot of outside people, consultants and economists and engineers, and so it became a major project in itself. Uh, so it, we were all in the United States uh, sort of boastful, wow, we have this national broadband plan, but it turned out that 
uh, when the United States developed its national broadband plan, it was the 52nd country <laughs> to do so. So we were not exactly in the vanguard of leadership uh, at that point. Uh, but uh, the good news is that we probably, the United States probably developed the most comprehensive uh, national broadband plan that had ever been developed, even though it sort of came behind those 51 other countries. Uh, what's interesting about the National Broadband Plan in the United States is it introduced a very interesting construct, which is really our national policy today, even though a lot of people may not remember the National Broadband Plan. And, and it's this notion that broadband is not, is not just networks. It's not just uh, either fiber or cable. It's not just speed. Broadband is an ecosystem. And so the National Broadband Plan of the United States was the first and most developed articulation of the notion of a broadband ecosystem. And the broadband ecosystem uh, essentially has three interdependent elements. And what's good is that all of us know this intuitively, but it was a, it's a nice way to sort of express it, and particularly for people who aren't in the field or don't understand it intuitively, it's a good way to sort of remind them that the three parts uh, revolve around each other and fit together. Uh, so the first part, and you're all, many of you are obviously have your screens up, but uh, uh, clearly applications and content. So the, the notion is the value of the ecosystem is that you can actually get things that you can interact with and learn from and enjoy. And so it's really the, the world of content and applications, and obviously, Applications are principally what we know as apps now and uh, principally are in a mobile environment. Uh, but if you think of that also as part of that whole content world, because clearly apps now uh, give us an, an enormous window into content. So that's the, uh, the first part of the ecosystem. Uh, the second part of the ecosystem are devices. And clearly, we could have all of these great applications and content, but if we could not access that through a device, it really wouldn't have very much applicability. And so uh, what the National Broadband Plan said was, uh, we're talking about a multiplicity of devices. Obviously, we all live with them today. So there are laptops and even desktops and tablets and a variety of mobile devices, principally smartphones. So the idea is that you need hardware, obviously, to work with the software in order to do that. And then the last piece is the transmission aspect, the network aspect. So the idea is you have the device and you have the content application, but then you need to be able to transmit and, of course, interact with it as well. Uh, and so that's this notion of broadband networks. And as I said, uh, principally, broadband networks which can del uh, deliver at a, a high rate speed uh, are typically either fiber-based or they're uh, cable-based. And a cable has a special uh, standard that it developed, which is called the DOCSIS standard, which essentially allows cable infrastructure, coaxial cable infrastructure, to be able to transmit at these high bit rates. Uh, so so that, those are the three elements of the ecosystem. Uh, but it's critically important to both understand what the ecosystem is and to be able to use that as an analytic lens. 
uh, I think much of the world sort of uh, thought that was interesting, but really hasn't continued to focus on the ecosystem because we've engaged, not just here, but in a number of other countries, in some pretty pitch political battles around network architecture and uh, network regulation. And so uh, the FCC, as you know, uh, last year, actually earlier this year, uh, completed a proceeding which is called the Open Internet Order. Uh, many of you know it by sort of the nickname of net neutrality. But the, the notion there is really looking at the, uh, the network. Uh, but what the FCC didn't really do at that time, even though national policy was to look at the ecosystem, they essentially sliced off one part of the ecosystem and said, we're going to make policy in that area. Uh, meanwhile, what's been happening around the world, let's say between 2010 and 2015, uh, is uh, the research community has become quite active in uh, developing metrics and essentially developing comparative data about how countries are doing with respect to their broadband progress. Now, a, a, a lot of that data, or at least a good part of that data, has been uh, related to networks, things like how fast are the networks, how cheap are the networks, how available are the networks. And so a lot of the focus has been more, again, on the network side. It's skewed in that direction without looking at the ecosystem as a whole. And unless and until both policy makers and the research community begins to understand that we're really dealing with that ecosystem, it's very difficult to essentially have this sort of siloed policy. And so there's this connection between the data and what policy might develop from that. Uh, and, and so uh, the other aspect is as data began to be developed, uh, as, you know, as researchers and as students and as faculty, uh, you understand not all data is good data. And so you have a lot of data which got out into the uh, blogosphere, let's call it, which uh, essentially was not terribly good data. It didn't have any good methodological grounding or it was dated, uh, or it was not from a credible source, uh, or the metho methodology wasn't transparent. So all of the things that you would think about if you were looking at this from a research perspective. But things began to sort of circulate, and uh, at least with the United States, there was this incredible notion that the United States was slipping behind the world of broadband, that the United States was now behind Estonia, and that, that was considered sort of a, uh, a critique of the United States. And, and the idea is that unless and until the United States began to sort of get its act together in broadband, uh, you know, we were destined to be a second or perhaps a third world broadband power. And of course, uh, for those of you who know about the notion of American exceptionalism, this idea that the United States uh, can and should be in this world leadership position, uh, the idea of having the United States be a sort of an also-ran in broadband uh, raised a lot of issues. Uh, so from a research perspective, and then the other aspect is a number of researchers, uh, primarily, uh, I would say, in the legal community, in the policy community, and not in the hard sciences or in engineering, uh, began to come up with their own studies. Uh, but their studies were 
were much more anecdotal. So a researcher would go over to, let's say, a country like Sweden for a couple of weeks during the semester break and would, you know, sit in a cafe and use broadband and would talk to people and would see how people were using their mobile devices and would come back and say, wow, Sweden is definitely at the cutting edge and we're falling behind Estonia. So there, there, there was sort of this n new narrative that began to filter within the research community, which is that, uh, again, the United States was falling behind. Other countries were so far ahead, and clearly policy needed to de uh, be developed to close the gap. Uh, so uh, when I began to do it, really at the time that the National Broadband Plan was developed, I decided to, uh, to become a voracious uh, reader and researcher in terms of looking at every piece of data that came out regarding the broadband ecosystem. And uh, essentially then begin to filter what would be good data versus less good data and even sort of a junk pile of terrible data. And so, oh, and over that period of time, uh, let's say I've looked at about 300 data sets. Uh, and, and, and that's a lot because it's not just the uh, raw data, but it's, or not just the finished data, but it's also the raw data, it's the underlying methodology. It's everything that led up to the completion of the data. Uh, and, and then uh, on the basis of that, I have compiled something called the Net Vitality Index. And the notion of net vitality, quite simply, is how do we begin to, to create an environment which uh, sustains and propels the broadband e internet ecosystem in all elements in its full flower? And because that's really what we're talking about. And so I, in doing so, what I wanted to do is also begin to inject a new level of thinking both in the research community and the policy community. Uh, unfortunately, in the past five years, those two communities have grown sort of far apart uh, because a lot of the policy issues began, began to morph into political issues and uh, the research community began to align itself with various aspects of those political issues uh, or, as I said, in some cases, we're not developing really serious or, or good research. And so I've, uh, I come out of a background where it's, I think it's critical for policymakers in the communications field, as in probably most other fields, uh, to actually make policy based on some research analysis and to have good research to be able to do that. And it's a, a symbiotic relationship because it helps policymakers. I think it helps researchers knowing that when they develop research, it goes into a policy stream and it may have some real-world applications. So uh, to the extent that I, I've had an agenda or continue to have an agenda, that, that's my agenda, which is to try to bridge and bring together the policy community and the research community uh, in a way that, frankly, they were uh, when I was starting in this field and for many years, but uh, there seems to be a little bit of divergence over the past few years, but that's really a second order effect of, of my research. Uh, so, so what I distilled from those, let's call it 300 or so uh, data sets, 
uh, were that there were 52 good data uh, sets from that 300. So it's about, you know, one out of six uh, was good enough to be included in the net vitality index. Uh, so why were certain things included? Why were certain things excluded? Uh, I, I guess at the core, it was very important to have uh, transparency. So these had to be non-proprietary. They couldn't be done by companies for the purpose of commercial, uh, you know, selling that data. It had to be visible to the public. You had to be able to look at the methodology in addition to the data. Uh, it had to be data that uh, hopefully would be replicated over time, so it was not just a one-shot study that was done. Uh, and, and I also really focused on the credibility of the organizations that were undertaking the data. And so uh, primarily these were public organizations. You know them all, uh, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the International Telecommunications. These are organizations that I think are universally acknowledged as being reliable and are frequently cited uh, in a number of academic and other studies. Uh, and, and then uh, I also looked at other more specialized uh, NGOs, for example. Uh, many of you may know an organization called Freedom House, which is probably the gold standard in looking at uh, uh, the freedom of internet communication in countries across the world. And so every year they develop their own internet freedom index to look at how free countries are with respect to content on the internet. Uh, I, uh, coming out of the management consulting firm, I also looked at data. Again, it has to be public data and uh, of organizations like McKinsey, and like BCG, and like uh, A.T. Kearney, uh, which are highly credible for the research that is in this area. Uh, and uh, in particular, some research is only done by organizations like that. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, there's something called an e-commerce index, which looks at sort of the, uh, the growth and the rate of e-commerce by country. Uh, that's not done by the United Nations, not done by the ITU or any of these other NGOs. It's something that's uh, uniquely interesting, obviously, to the commercial world. And so a firm like A.T. Kearney uses that as a way to have the information go out, I presume for the purpose of sort of marketing their consulting services afterwards. But the, the data itself is, is good data. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, what I've produced now is, is what's called this net vitality index, and that's the, these 52 sources. Now, the, uh, the index is not a perfect index. In many ways, I call it a research sketch pad because it's, it's a construct that I want, wanted to release to the world, to both the research community and the policy community, and said, here's some interesting data to look at. Here's some an interesting way to look at it, and let's begin to have a conversation around this with the notion that uh, this will be a long-term conversation because internet policy, as you know, is from today through infinity. And so, uh, you know, it's, we're not, what I'm trying to do is take a few snapshots as they occur, but over time, hopefully some of this information will change. 
The other thing that was important in coming up with the construct was to essentially make it neutral in its weighting. So I, I didn't, for example, say, you know, networks are a lot more important than devices, or devices are more important than applications, and then assign essentially weights to them so that the index would reflect that. Uh, I've essentially said everything is e everything in the index is equal. All 52 parts of it are equal. But if you in the research community or you in the policy community say it's more important for us to focus on networks now or more important to focus on devices or an application content, you can do your own weighting. And so you know, what I've been doing is also encouraging researchers around the world to begin to think about how you, how you play with this as a tool. And in addition, uh, the 52 is not a finite number. In, in my you know, best thinking here, I would like to have the index expand. I would like to have more information put in the index. Uh, and an interesting aspect of the index is that I, I also have a lot of macroeconomic data, which I think is highly relevant to uh, broadband internet development. It's really the first index that reflects micro, uh, macroeconomic data as well as sort of this micro data around certain aspects of broadband development. Uh, and, and so over time, uh, this uh, index I call version 1.0. It was released in April of 2015. Uh, the Media Institute, which is a, a, a nonpartisan, I guess you would call it a think tank, but primarily a research organization in Washington, D.C., uh, was the publisher. They had no editorial input over this, uh, so I hold the copyright and have my name on this, and it's, it's really my product. But uh, they were certainly kind, uh, kind to both publish it and also to help support some presentations that have been done uh, in Washington and elsewhere. Uh, there are two volumes of this. Uh, the first is called Net Vitality, Identifying the Top-Tier Global Broadband Internet Ecosystem Leaders. And the second is the Net Vitality Index in Detail. So let me talk a little bit about both of those uh, documents, which are really part of the same academic and research work. Once I had the index, uh, I then began to say, well, is there a way for us to look across all of these indices and begin to distill from those rankings without changing any of the data or methodology in those rankings? Is there a way for us to figure out who are really the leaders around the world? And by leaders, I mean country leaders around the world. Uh, and not to do a ranking in the way that I call U.S. News does it, not to have a number one country and a number 15 country, but essentially to, to look at a tier. And uh, as an initial tier, uh, when all of the sort of analytic work was done, there were five countries that were clearly in this top tier. I, I've had uh, a good budget, but a limited budget and limited time uh, I'm involved in a lot of other activities, as Professor Hendershot indicated. And, and so I, uh, I can't really tell you what the second tier or the third tier or the fourth tier or even the fifth tier looks like. That's, 
that's sort of the next horizon. I would love to be able to uh, do this or to have other researchers begin to say, here's how we build out the entire tier structure. Uh, but what I know now is what the top tier is, and I thought that was at least a good way to begin this conversation with the policy world and the research world. Uh, so unless you're online now and looking at this, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, ask, um, does anyone know what the five countries are in the top tier? You could just sh shout out names of countries. South Korea. Maybe Romania. Okay, Romania. Japan. Finland. Finland. Someone said Finland. There, okay. Sweden. Sweden. United Kingdom. What about the United States? <laughs> so here, that's sort of a perfect example where we sort of had this thinking that, boy, the United States probably is behind Estonia. Uh, it turns out, no, the United States is clearly uh, in the top tier and uh, very, very, very strong in the top tier. Uh, and uh, South Korea is, and Japan is, and the UK is, and France is. Uh, but Sweden is not, and uh, Finland is not, and Denmark is not, and Romania is not. So there are uh, the two countries that uh, I call our cusp countries, which means that they, they might have been in the top tier, but they're just below that, uh, are Germany and Canada. And, and the reason that they didn't make it is because they, they tend to have weaknesses. I mean, they tend to be strong in one or two of the areas of the ecosystem, but they tend to be weak in another area, whereas the top-tier leaders tend to have strength in applications and content, in devices, and in networks. And, and, you know, in some combination, every combination is different. And, and so I, I guess that's sort of the, the headline when you do these presentations for policymakers or for the press. The first thing they want to do is say, you know, what are the five countries? And, uh, and unfortunately, as you know, things get uh, sometimes distilled into sound bites, and so they will say, uh, you know, the United States is the leading country. It, it's not. It is in the top tier, uh, as are the other countries. Uh, it turns out that uh, what I do is just represent them geographically, starting in North America, moving to Europe and Asia. And so I, I think they may have been represented by name, but clearly saying in, not in order but just in sort of geographical reach. This is, uh, this is what the top tier leaders are. Uh, and so then the next step, once I, I identified who these top tier leaders were on the basis of these rankings, was to then look at sort of the policy making, the policies around what made them great. And to see if, uh, first of all, there were individual things going on in the countries, which might be interesting for other countries to know about, uh, or whether there were certain commonalities uh, of those, uh, among those countries. And so uh, in the report, uh, or at least in the first, what I call volume of this report, there's a little bit of qualitative work, uh, sort of mini case studies 
of these five countries in terms of what, what made them great. And again, you know, looking forward, it would be uh, wonderful to be able to replicate not just data analysis but also case study analysis as I move down in the tier structure or maybe move up and I'll talk a little bit about that afterwards. Uh, another, an aspect of the policy uh, sort of discussions going on is, is really two views of the world. One is the traditional view, which is regulation. Does government essentially come up with a way to uh, develop rules and regulations that will essentially shape this ecosystem? And, and then the other notion is this idea that government has a, an important role, but government's role is not primarily a regulatory role. Government's role is primarily an enabling and catalytic role. So government supports, promotes, but the idea is that primarily the private sector is there to innovate, is there to create new businesses, is there to be entrepreneurial, and government cannot develop rules that essentially says you, you must innovate or you must be entrepreneurial. And so support in a variety of different ways. Some of it is financial. Some of it is um, uh, incubation. As you know, a number of governments, particularly uh, South Korea and Japan, have been wonderful in terms of the government essentially funding the incubation process for uh, both innovation and for new businesses. Uh, there are also some really interesting examples that came out of the individual countries that may or may not be replicable across other countries, but clearly explained some of their success. Is anyone here from South Korea? So uh, uh, South Korea uh, ha has had enormous success uh, in part because they have focused on the notion of digital literacy. and They really uh, funded and created a culture where people were digitally literate, and I'm using that in the broadest context, but essentially uh, digitally comfortable, digitally facile, however you might want to describe it. Uh, but this notion of getting people comfortable with the technology, getting people comfortable with using the technology to access content, and then as another stage, obviously, getting them used to the notion of having that content come to them and their ability to upload at very fast speeds. So how, how did South Korea do it? Uh, they started a program. So South Korea, South Korean culture is obviously you know, different and unique. Uh, it's, it's based uh, in, in large part on uh, women who are uh, stay-at-home uh, mothers and workers in the home. Uh, who essentially manage a lot of the family. They manage the finances. They uh, manage, essentially, a little enterprise called a family. Uh, and so the Korean government decided that they were the target audience, that if you could get, if you could get what the Koreans call, I, it's not politically correct here, but the Koreans call these housewives. If you could get housewives to essentially begin to utilize broadband digital technology and content and networks, then essentially 
they would tell their husbands and their kids, and you could build a movement. And, and so they literally funded a program where you could call it sort of an adult education program, uh, where essentially they invited housewives to come in and sit and learn and be comfortable with uh, computers and learn how to use different applications. And so that was a very unique aspect of their program, but it helped fuel uh, another is uh, uh, what we call PC bangs. PC bangs are essentially sort of cyber cafes in uh, South Korea. And, and the notion was these would have really high-speed connections, and primarily uh, so that you could get games and interact uh, in a gaming environment. And so at the other end of the age scale, uh, they made it very attractive for teenagers and young adults to begin to come and congregate at these cyber cafes socially and uh, in their spare time. And they then got them used to this notion that we need to have faster networks. And so it's the combination of the housewives and their kids and relatives then used to these fast networks coming together to essentially create demand for that ecosystem. Uh, the other interesting aspect about South Korea, uh, for those of you who've been to a place like Seoul, it's highly dense. So it's, uh, it's actually quite easy or much easier and more efficient to put fiber or cable in you know, large apartment buildings. And uh, yeah, a lot of the issues that you have in a community like Cambridge, which is hundreds of years old, and you have a lot of underground, which has not been dug up in years. Uh, in a place like South Korea, you don't have that. A lot of the infrastructure is relatively new, and uh, essentially the density has contributed. But what South Korea did, which was interesting, is they created a cyber certification program. Uh, most of the housing units in Seoul are rental units. And there's a, and as many of you know who've been to Japan or Hong Kong or other parts of Asia, many of these units are small apartments, and you could have a lot of these apartments in a, a big building. Uh, but what they decided to do was to essentially have cyber certification by the government, uh, similar to what we have here in the LED program, which is when you walk in to rent an apartment and you see the certificate, the certificate essentially says, we have really high-speed high broadband available in the building. And they found that that obviously would influence the ability or the willingness of people to rent. And particularly because it's a rental market, there are people who said, you know, I'm in a slow building. I'm moving to a faster building. And so there, there's an example where the government was an enabler, it didn't regulate, it didn't require any of the buildings to uh, increase their capacity or increase their speed, but it created a marketplace which then took hold. So that gives you sort of a, a little flavor of uh, you know, what happens in, in other countries. Uh, France, uh, as some of you know, really pioneered a system in the early 1980s called Minitel, and that was really sort of the, the pre-internet internet. internet. Uh, but the notion is that if you had a telephone system, you could get a little monitor and, and text space. There was one-way text 
which would then be available to subscribers, but they would be able to access it through a keyboard. And so uh, and it was really promoted by France Telecom, which was the monopoly telecommunications provider at the time. And so uh, uh, millions and millions of, of French uh, residents were essentially weaned very early on Minitel. And so as Minitel morphed into the internet many years later, people already were accustomed to this notion of having screens, of having information coming to them of uh, using keyboards. And this was really in advance of any of our uh, PCs today. This is before Apple was uh, penetrated in the market. So, so that gives you uh, another example. Uh, the, uh, the UK has just been terrific in terms of stimulating entrepreneurship, particularly in the applications and content area. And so there's just a, a lot of, for those of you who've been in London recently or other parts, uh, they're just uh, hubs of innovation. I mean, it, it's similar to what we have here in Cambridge and in places like MIT. Uh, but the, the government, as you know, uh, virtually all of um, higher education and research in the UK is at the public level. And so that m means that there's been public money that's been pouring into this to stimulate innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, the United States. So, so the United States up until very recently uh, was committed to the notion that uh, the internet essentially would not be regulated. Uh, so at, obviously uh, you can go out and buy devices from around the world. Uh, and if some companies decided they want to uh, restrict your ability to, uh, you know, use their software elsewhere. Obviously, that was not a, a regulatory issue at all. And so many of you know that most uh, smartphones came locked. Uh, I mean, that, that's changed, but that's changed primarily as a market function because people say, you know, I don't really want a locked phone anymore. And the same for things like mo monthly or yearly contracts as as you know, the market is sort of adjusted to all of that. Uh, but in the United States, uh, up until very recently, uh, we were similar to France, UK, Japan, and South Korea in terms of essentially uh, looking at the internet as a either an unregulated or a very lightly regulated medium. And the way the United States did it is uh, really through the two principal industries that were offering broadband networks. One is the telephone industry and the other is the cable television industry. Telephone industry started off essentially retrofitting their copper wires into something called digital subscriber lines or DSL, which was uh, sort of a, a high speed at that time uh, mechanism, but clearly today if we look back DSL is, is really old technology. And DSL also had some particular limitations because uh, you essentially could only do this within a certain geographic distance from the central switching facility. So there were a number of communities, including places like Cambridge, which were more than two miles from the central switching uh, uh, facility, so you could not get DSL. 
Uh, cable decided that they were going to leapfrog, and Cable came up with this new standard, which I mentioned called DOCSIS, which essentially gives you the ability to utilize the existing coaxial cable infrastructure, which is you know higher capacity than copper, and to be able essentially to sort of overlay uh, data and internet with video. And so, uh, you know, as you've seen in the marketplace, uh, you know, once upon a time, DSL was the market leader. Then all of a sudden, cable came in, and uh, companies like Time Warner and Comcast began to change their business model, where uh, the majority of their revenues now come from broadband, or the largest part of their revenues, and not from conventional cable service. Uh, in response, the telephone companies needed to do something because they realized that they were technologically behind. And so uh, two of the major telephone companies, Verizon and AT&T, developed fiber-based services. Uh, they have names. You probably know one, which is called Fios, which is the Verizon system, uh, and the other is called Uverse, which is offered by AT&T. And so these are, are really the state of the art. Yeah, I mean, these are fiber from the beginning. Uh, I can't get, well, you can't get them here, here. Uh, but you could get them in, uh, in the Boston area. Uh, I mean, I've, I live in Lexington, for example, and we have it, uh, have it there. Uh, but it's, it's very, very expensive. So uh, not expensive for the consumer, but it's very expensive to install. And so it's essentially about $1,000 a household to install. And so if you're doing the math, you have to figure out how do you recover the, uh, what's called the sunk cost of that installation, and how do you do it at a competitive level so that you're not pricing it where people are going to find it unattractive to buy it, but they also want the best service at the same time. Uh, so uh, for a period of time, uh, the companies pushed forward with Fios and, and Uverse. They found it was not economically uh, viable for them. And so uh, in the past few years, they pulled back. But now, because of competitive forces, principally Google, which, as you know, has begun to go into various cities around the country, and they've had this national bidding process to essentially uh, install uh, one gigabit fiber networks in communities. Kansas City was the first. Omaha is out there. There are a few others. And in response, in competitive response to that, uh, surprise, surprise, AT&T and Verizon now say, you know, we think we're going to be doing that too. And so now I would suspect in the next few years uh, you're going to see a lot of activity. And I would suspect that Boston will have a, a the greater Boston area will have a, a one gigabit uh, fiber network either through Google or some combination of AT&T or Verizon. AT&T, for example, has already announced 100 cities that they're going to be doing this in over the next five years. So it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, so what I haven't focused on very much is really most of the world we live in today, which is mobile technology. And so, so, so much of this has really focused on this competition in wired-based systems. But, but broadband is not just a wired-based network uh, facility. Uh, and even the National Broadband Plan five years ago said mobile is the future of broadband. 
And I think, uh, you know, as we've gone through the evolution of 3G and 4G, and I can tell you with a good deal of confidence, 5G will be here. 5G is being developed now, and 5G will be here in a few years. And so we're really on this uh, migration path, a fast migration path, technically, technologically, uh, with mobile systems. And as you know, uh, you know, the, sort of the smartphone is our probably our, our de device of choice now. I think everyone uses their smartphone in the way that you used to use a desktop or a laptop. It's it's no longer really a phone. It's basically a an information and communication device. And you know, you know all the data in terms of how reliant we are on smartphone technology. And you know, I'm sure many of you have upgraded or are constantly looking online to see what is a new upgrade happening. And I'm not going to ask if any of you stood on lines when the new iPhone 6 was released. But uh, clearly, we're in this uh, highly mobile broadband environment. What's been interesting is that countries like Japan and South Korea uh, and the UK have been very oriented towards developing their broadband future around mobile. Uh, the United States less so, uh, although the United States has been very good in terms of having uh, 4G technology, for example. Clearly, the United States is the, is the world's leader right now in 4G. And so, um, you know, what, one of the sort of ongoing issues is at what point will we sort of veer over from you know, stationary, and I, I understand mobile is not necessarily mobile. It's basically the ability not to be stationary because many people actually use their mobile devices here. They just sit down and you're using, some of you may have tablets or other devices, and even your laptops are, are mobile devices. Uh, so we may even need to come up with a new term for what mobile needs over time. But, but I think the very notions, clearly when you look across the world, and particularly in the device area, the much of the world that is not connected to the Internet now, which is the majority of the world, we have about 6.5 billion people, we have about 4.2 billion who are not connected at all. Uh, those people are going to have to be connected not through physical wires, they're going to have to be connected through some sort of wireless uh, transmission, and they're going to have to have relatively uh, low-cost smartphones. And, and clearly, they're go also going to have to have content which is suited for those particular countries or regions. And one of the big areas of development that really has not been cracked yet is uh, a lot of the Internet has been developed on an English language basis, and there are large parts of the world. Uh, I mean, I particularly uh, Arab countries, for example, uh, where, you know, there are not a lot of Arabic, you probably know this, there are not a lot of uh, Arabic uh, web services. And it's sort of, so there's really a whole revolution that needs to take place, uh, even in the linguistic and in the language area. Uh, so that, uh, that gives you sort of a, a little flavor of sort of my thinking on net vitality. Uh, what's really been gratifying is that in the few months that this has been released, uh, it's starting to almost have a life of its own. It's almost like I haven't done this personally, but it's sort of like giving birth to a baby. 
and you get to see your child grow and begin to do things and sometimes it's doing things without you even knowing about it but uh, I, I know I get emails and I'm in conversation with literally people from around the world uh, I, I've been very gratified that the International Institute of Communication which is a sort of a major research and policy body has, uh, has invited me to do presentations in uh, different parts of the world around this and so the, the notion is to sort of get the word out about net vitality, but also uh, particularly in an academic and research environment to get researchers interested in this notion so that they will begin to either formulate new research or begin to identify other sources that we might want to put in the index or begin to weight them in different ways. And, and then from the policy standpoint, uh, what's nice about the National Broadband Plan, at least in the United States, is even though it's a physical document, right in the document it says this is an organic process. We are going to essentially put it in writing now, but it will change and develop and morph over time. Uh, there are some countries who look at it as sort of creating a uh, sort of a biblical text that it will just be a single source and once we release it everyone will follow but uh, that I think has that notion is starting to soften I think everyone recognizes that the pace of technology the pace of content and application development even the pace of network development is so rapid that it's very difficult to say that a national broadband plan is here for the next four or five years. Uh, I, I want to just close with one other notion here, which is uh, the notion of Professor Michael Porter at Harvard Business School. So uh, Professor Porter came out about 20, 25 years ago with a, a great construct, which is uh, he's done a lot of work on competition and uh, competitive environments. And he then did a major study called The Competitive Advantage of Nations. And so he said, essentially, nations are competing with each other in this global economy, as well as individual companies and enterprises. And, and that's been a construct that I've sort of bolted onto uh, my net vitality analysis so that I'm looking at countries as units, and that's why all of the work in the net vitality index looks on a country-by-country country basis uh, as opposed to regions. Uh, for example, a lot of research says we're going to look at uh, the OECD countries or we're going to look at Asia as a region. Uh, but the net vitality index and the notion that Michael Porter has is that it's really countries that are competing against each other. In terms of policy, a lot of countries have typically looked at competition within the country. Who is com what companies are competing? And I think the United States probably has a sort of a relatively short-sighted view that competition only takes place when you have Verizon competing against Comcast, uh, or you have T-Mobile competing against AT&T. But in the broader construct of the ecosystem of the broadband global uh, internet ecosystem, uh, we see that competition can come from outside of a particular country 
And competition is not just economic competition, it's the competition for mind share, it's the competition for talent, it's the competition for buzz, it's competition for all the things we we live you know live with today. And so, you know, it, it allows a Skype to essentially, you know, come from a little country and become a worldwide phenomenon. It, it allows a WhatsApp to literally be developed in you know, a small room and again go global very quickly. And, and then it allows at the hardware level uh, companies like Samsung to come in with uh, the Galaxy devices and, and really begin to dominate a market that most people thought you know, Apple had won. But in fact, when you look at the data, uh, Samsung is actually now the, the market leader in, uh, in smartphones. So it's, uh, it's a great world. I think my sort of closing remark is uh, for all of you who are in this field or want to be in this field, uh, come in. It's a great, great field. And what's wonderful about it is uh, everything is changing. And so there are no easy answers. There are hard problems. There are good questions. There's a lot of work to be done. And uh, you know, I think we need as many smart, capable, people involved in this from all cultures and all parts of the world. And that's all of you today. So thank you, and I'll open it up for questions. Uh, by, by the way, for those of you who are online or want, if you just Google uh, Net Vitality and Media Institute, you can get both of these documents in living color. Uh, the second document is called Net Vitality Index in Detail, so you could also Google that. But if you just go to the Media Institute and do Net Vitality and put in my name, you'll be able to get these and, and, and play around. There's a lot of uh, data in them and a lot of charts, and I like actually talking about it more than I like spending an hour just uh, flipping through charts because you could do that in your leisure time with a, a much better focus. Hi. Hi. I'm Sasha Kassam, I'm a professor here in uh, CMS, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the Berkman Center. Ah, great. Um, I have so many questions for you. OK. <laughs> um, but before the questions, I have a, um, I guess, so the, the, the picture that you created of a sort of choice between regulation and enabling innovation. And those are sort of the, the two ends that we can uh, think about, the two poles for the state. I feel like it's a, it's a little bit reductive. And I think the story you told about Korea you know, uh, is a good example. So a counter example to the story that you told, which is an important piece of it, which is the digital literacy initiatives, is you know, the Korean information infrastructure you know, project where the Korean state invested over a period of 10 years a great deal of resources to systematically uh, network all of the government offices and the large, so they, they, they laid all the infrastructure and then they uh, ensured a competitive marketplace for the last mile so that they made sure that a bunch of small telcos would be competing uh, you know, to set that up, whereas, um, so anyway, I, just, I, I think that's an important piece of it so that uh, I don't, I'm not sure that those Yeah, can I, can I just interject there? I, I, I didn't mean to, to suggest that this is, these are sort of binary choices. Right. Okay. And so uh, I'm not sure whether that was, yeah, that's your interpretation. But I, I, you know, I basically said if you wanted to, 
yeah, just as a shorthand, if you want to look at this, because traditionally when you talk about government, uh, the government role, the government role has been a regulatory role. And, uh, and yet we see, certainly in the past 20, 30 years, government having a very different role, which is a more of a, this enabling. And even going back to what I started with, which was the National Broadband Plan and this notion of stimulus, so the, the whole uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the notion there was that we would take a chunk of money and we would begin to fund pilot projects and other aspects, not just in terms of last mile, but in terms of middle mile and you know, a variety of other things. And, and so that, that really was the first time in the United States we've ever done this. It's been done in other countries, and clearly uh, you know, Korea is a good example of that. Uh, but you also have, again, if you're just looking at the network level, if you look at Korea, uh, Korea has, has not really uh, wanted to stimulate very much competition on the device end. They essentially said, we have decided that Samsung is going to be our national champion, and we are going to go into the world market with Samsung, which means that everyone who is developing other things has to sell to Samsung. So. Uh, there, there's a, there's a role where, in fact, they were not promote, they were promoting a world competition because, as I said, competition is horizontal as well as vertical. But in doing that, if you looked at it through United States lens or even lens or even a European lens, you would say that's highly anti-competitive because they weren't mo- opening the market to a lot of other device manufacturers and, in fact, were sort of putting their thumb on the scale. So it depends on how you look at, at the ecosystem. But the important thing is look at the ecosystem. Don't just look at the networks. Sure. Um, so I guess the, the question, the two questions that I have for you, one of them is about um, uh, sort of a piece of the puzzle, which is the anti-competitive developments based on venue shifting and regulatory capture. Uh, so for example, a good example in the United States would be the large telcos systematically lobbying at every level, whether it's city, state, federal, or increasingly in the, in the level of the trade agreements, against municipal uh, investments in, uh, in networks. And so again, we're talking about the network level, but this is a, uh, it's a problem for many, many people feel that it's a problem, and it's a piece of the puzzle that I, I think would be worth, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about that uh, piece as well. The, the bigger question that I have is actually about um, what's in the net vitality index and some of the metrics that are included and, and what's excluded. And I would love to hear you think about um, metrics of in-country access inequality and what it might mean to include that in the net vitality index if we believe that part of the role of the net, that there, the part of the role of the net is it's a, it's a public question, right? It's not mm-hmm. Right, right. So uh, it would be really interesting and useful to gather, say, uh, country by country uh, metrics of you know, proportion of low-income population that is connected, or gender inequality, which is less, less of a problem in the US or the advanced countries, but certainly at, at a global scale is really, really critical. Or in the US, the latest Pew stats have, you know, uh, we've only got about 50% broadband connectivity among households that are making $30,000 or less. So working class households, minimum wage households, are not connected to the network in the way that uh, we would, I think, like to see. 
So wouldn't it be important to include metrics of access inequality in something like uh, what you're trying to do with the net vitality? Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's why I say you know, the door is open if people have uh, either ideas, but in particular, if people can point to, to established and well-developed research sources that are out there, I am always looking for them. I'll look at anything and, and sort of apply the same rigor to them. I mean, some may not be included, but the idea clearly is to have as much good data out there and to segment it in as many ways as possible. So and again, to reinforce, there's no magic in 52. I did not shoot, say I'm coming up with 52 because of some numeric reason. Some person said that's how many cards there are in a deck. I didn't come up with that for that reason. Uh, I would like to see 100 over time. Uh, and to take all of the variables you talked about, it would be great if we can begin to look through the lens of applications and content by gender, by ethno, uh, ethnic opposition, by socioeconomic, all of those things, devices, all of that, and then to begin to look across the ecosystem as well. Uh, there are not many organizations who are doing this, and, and you know, part of what I'm also trying to do is to stimulate at the institutional level to get organizations like the ITU or the World Economic Forum to begin to say, yeah, maybe we should begin, or Pew, to begin to collect the data and not just to do it sort of as a one-shot, we're just going to do it for a one-shot project. Uh, I don't know if you know the World Wide Web Foundation, uh, started by Tim Berners-Lee, very credible organization. Uh, but they've done very interesting work on access to information, and they have in the uh, Net Vitality Index. So, so they've looked at information related to certain subject areas. So they, they look at information related to women's rights and workers' rights and climate change and early warning systems, school accountability, budget transparencies, innovation in agriculture, which is obviously a major issue around the world. And so they're, they're looking at how users of the, of the broadband internet ecosystem can access this information. And they have done this by country. They've looked at countries and say, let, let us essentially say which are the countries that are sort of best, which are ones that are okay, and which are ones that are deficient. So they've sort of had a three-tiered ranking system. And on the basis of that, they've had this horizontal analysis saying, let's see who is best across the board. Who's best across the board? Anyone know what country? United States. Uh, the United States is, is uh, the only country, in fact, that is superior in having uh, citizens have access to this sort of information. Uh, you know, another area which really has not received as much attention, although clearly in the past few years it has, uh, under Secretary Clinton uh, in the State Department, but the notion of internet freedom. We all know, and some of you may be from countries, where internet freedom is not what we have in the United States. And so uh, there are many parts of the world where you can have the best networks, you can have competition with companies, 
and you have the bottleneck at the government le level restricting what content or applications that consumers can receive. And so that, that's, that remains an important sort of global geopolitical issue which will not necessarily be resolved through a regulatory mechanism uh, or even a marketplace mechanism. will probably have to be resolved through diplomatic mechanisms. Other, other questions? Yes. Uh, just building right off that, I was curious about, I mean, South Korea, the infrastructure is fantastic there. I lived there for a couple of years. There's orgy in the middle of a national park. So the first question I have is how, by what measure does the states have the best orgy right now, as you put it? And also, I'm wondering about censorship, um, how that would factor into the index. I suppose I should just take a look at it myself. Uh, but how censorship um, and also these like state oligopolies that influence how these um, ecosystems are constructed, how that is sort of accounted for in the, the vitality index. Right. Uh, well, so let, let, let's break it down a little bit. Um, and, and maybe I shouldn't use the, the word best. I would probably say the most widespread. Let, let me just go back to South Korea. So South Korea, as you know, uh, the South Korean government decided they were going to do these massive pilot projects. This is for fiber-based systems. Uh, and everyone talks about the wonderful fiber-based systems that South Korea has developed. If, you, if you've lived there or been there, you know that it's highly concentrated in uh, a few cities, primarily in Seoul, and not in the country as a whole. And uh, when you look at the actual uh, development of these pilot projects, the fastest uh, speed pilot projects were only developed for 5,000 people in, in all of South Korea, which is about 52 million. Uh, I, I think if we replicated that in the United States, if we said we're going to have a national pilot project with 20 or 25,000 people, I think most of us would find that a little bit comical to say on the basis of that we can, you know, we can say that we have this wonderful system. Uh, I have a a uh, particular article I've done for the Brookings, uh, on the Brookings website on Tech, tech Tank, which is their uh, Center for Technology Innovation, dealing uh, very specifically with uh, South Korean broadband development. So uh, I, would, I would probably just refer you to that as, as a little way of seeing some of the things South Korea has done in the area. Uh, in terms of content, as I said, Internet freedom is an integral part of the net vitality index. And so I have, I don't, I try not to use words like censorship because they tend to have sort of a, uh, a connotation. So this notion of Internet freedom is a more neutral way of putting it. I tend to not use words like oligopoly uh, in there as well because they tend to essentially have a certain meeting yeah, that, that's ascribed to where you're coming from. Uh, but I, I think the, all of these notions of how countries are doing are reflected. And as I said, it's a starting set. It's not an end set. And, you know, let, let's try to figure out how to, how to grow it. But for now, it's a conversation starter. It's a paradigm. It's a, I don't want to call it a paradigm shift, but it's at least the start of a paradigm shift as we begin to look at net vitality, which is this notion of five years from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now, how are we going to be able to sustain all of this wonderful 
environment that we're growing up in and living in now, uh, and you need to essentially begin to lay the groundwork for that. Uh, just going back quickly to Michael Porter. My, Michael Porter, also in the competitive advantage of nations, had this notion of a, uh, a disconnect between what he called competitive time and political time. And political time, as we know, typically is around when people get elected to office. So in the United States, we have congressional elections every two years, and we have presidential elections every four years. And so a lot of policy gets made in political time. Set that aside, then we have this whole world of competition. Competition isn't necessarily locked into a two-year congressional cycle or a four-year presidential cycle. And as we know, uh, the competitive cycle generally is about a 10-year cycle. Things take about 10 years. As, uh, you know, as you know, uh, you know, the iPod, I think, started about 10 years ago. Many, many of the things that we've been looking at over time uh, take a good 10 years. Not, not just the techno technological development, but essentially companies that are organized around it and then competing with each other. And so there's this, I think, pretty substantial disconnect between competitive time and political time. And we need to begin to reconcile that. Probably the way we need to reconcile that is to begin to think of policy in a much more long-term way which is the strength of countries like South Korea and Japan and France and the UK. They say, we're, we're coming up with a plan for 10 years and 10 years from now we'll see if it worked and if it didn't work then we'll make some modifications. I think in the United States we get a little too locked into this notion of having uh, regulatory agencies, for example, which are essentially controlled by whoever is the dominant party that controls the White House in a period of time. And so a lot of policy gets locked into the political calendar in a way that may not reflect what's happening in the competitive marketplace. Other questions? Uh, I guess I'm curious to hear you talk more about what you do view as the policy implications of the uh, units that you create. Uh, because I guess I kind of heard you in your talk, it sounded like you were trying to position yourself against people who are, are worried, you know, perhaps that the U.S. is behind Estonia. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, people who are making that argument that you seem to be pushing back against, in part by saying if we step back and look at a larger picture, the U.S. seems to be doing fine. Uh, when you start drilling that into particular indices, you know, one can imagine someone making the argument that we're behind Estonia might be looking at fixed broadband speed, where we seem to be 11 minutes. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm curious, you seem to be juxtaposing your sort of overarching view that says the US is a world leader uh, versus this argument that maybe there are particular problems or particular indices uh, that we need to address. And so I'm, I'm just curious to hear you see, uh, talk about any well, well, again, I don't want I don't want my talk to be reduced to a soundbite. I don't think the headline that you should come out with is uh, the United States is number one and all of that. As I said, 
this is really a top-tier analysis in, in the way that if you looked at the top engineering and technology universities in the country, you'd say MIT, you'd say Caltech, you'd say Stanford, you'd say Berkeley. But, um, and I know if you came out of here, you'd say you know, MIT is the best. But I, I'm not necessarily sort of waving the flag here. But what I, what I am saying is we do, and I don't consider it a pushback. I, I, I consider it a contextual discussion, which is to say let's look at the context that we're dealing with. And the context that we're dealing with, I think everyone understands intuitively, uh, is not just a context of speed. Or, or network capacity. Uh, it's your ability to, you know, have the device that you have and, and to have that device uh, interact with the network and to be able to get the content and applications that you want. So it's, it's all of that. It's all of the things that we live with today. And, you know, I, I sort of have a positive notion. I, I think that once we begin to connect our intuitive experience with at least some data and some way to, to sort of encapsulate all of this, that's where you can begin to have an interesting policy discussion. But we're not there yet. So I guess if you think I'm pushing back, I, my message is let's try to broaden the conversation. Let's try to get there. And one way of getting there is to begin to look across the ecosystem and begin to look at some of the real data that's out there, uh, you know, and, and then see what we can come up with. Other questions? I have a question. Um, could you tell us, is Minitel one of your case studies? Uh, it's, it's uh, France is in there, and it's not, a, I didn't do a specific case study of Minitel, but clearly, I start sort of the discussion of France with, with this notion of Minitel. Okay. So I, I was just hoping you could fill us in a little bit more about that because um, the, uh, the way that you referenced it, I mean, it's, it's an import, it, it was an important moment, um, but it's, I think as you were describing it, it was successful in terms of getting, you know, developing to something else later. And my understanding of Minitel was that it was kind of disastrous in many ways because it was very fixed in its design that you're supposed to use it to buy stuff, you know, for shopping and, you know, uh, airplane tickets and stuff like that. And it was, as you, as you mentioned, it was a one-way texting thing, right? And then people actually wanted to talk to each other. And I don't know how much sort of hacking there was into this, but my, my vague impression was that there wasn't like sort of hacking in play where people found ways to talk to each other in the system and make it two-directional even though it was supposed to be one-directional. Mm -hmm. So, and that's how things, it, things turned out, like that the internet was for buying stuff and also for talking and other stuff. But I was just hoping you could fill in that story a little bit. I was found it really interesting. In yeah, I, I think you raised an interesting point, but I, I wasn't really talking about Minitel as a business model. Most of the analysis that's been done over time of Minitel is it was a, a terrible business model. Right. And therefore, it was a failure. And I think there is sort of a conventional wisdom out there that it was this sort of the crazy French doing a crazy French thing, and it died, and, you know, what do we expect? What I tried to do was essentially say, and I think if you talk to French policymakers, looking back over competitive time, not political time, they would say in the long arc of history that 
people in France are more tied into the internet and to all of its uh, wealth and riches, not, not in economic terms, but obviously our usage of the internet, because there was this whole generation of people who grew up with a screen as part of their telephone system and a keyboard uh, in the way that we did not in the United States, for example. It, it's probably more of the construct of what we call digital natives today. All of you now are growing up in, you know, with all of the technology and all of the services, and so your kids and your grandkids culturally and socially will benefit. So I, I, I think what I was trying to describe there is really the sort of the social influence as opposed to the business model influence of it, which I, I agree was not a successful enterprise. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's the nature of innovation. I mean, we had, as some of you may know, in the United States, we had a lot of early experiments in two-way cable, uh, interactive. I mean, that's been, this has been going on for years and years, and it's really an iteration. Those specific businesses may fail, but over time, uh, they may be highly successful once they're developed through a different technology or different price in a variety of different ways. Uh, so your homework assignment is to uh, go online, read Net Vitality. Uh, if you'd like to email me, you can email me. And if you have questions or if you have sources that you would like, like to point me to, I, as I said, I would love to see them. Uh, I don't do all of this sort of sitting with a green eye shade. I have a research team which is behind me. And so what, what's nice is I, I'm sort of the hub of that. I get to say, gee, here's an interesting piece of research. Now will you tell me everything about that piece of research, how it was developed, what's the methodology, what's the history, all of that. And then you know, we sort of filter that through the process. So we're there. Thank you.